bass layer in your voice, bass, bass picks bass. up well. Oh, yeah. Always a drop, it, a drop an octave. Hey, okay. welcome back to another episode of Signal Fire Radio, a show about ambitious leadership for ambitious leaders, where each and every day we set out to conquer the villain of self-doubt by having encouraging conversations designed to feed the mind, strengthen the body, enrich your spirit, and grow your tribe. As always, I am joined by the unicorn of Wilmington, North Carolina, my bestie, the narwhal from NorCal, Matt Mylot. Matthew, how are you today? Doing good. I'm in the Christmas spirit. Yeah, I'm in the Christmas spirit too. What have you been doing that has gotten you feeling Christmassy? Well, I was sharing earlier that last night we went caroling mm-hmm. with Peter McGuire, yeah. our, our very own. I need you to because uh, so Peter McGuire's a previous guest. If you haven't listened to his shows, uh, you need to go back and check him out. Um, subscribe to Signal Fire Radio on all podcast platforms and check us out on YouTube. Describe Peter, if you will. Oh, man. Before we bring our guest in. Um, radically intelligent genius. genius. I mean, the guy is a genius, genius level genius. I mean, he's an inventor, entrepreneur, mm-hmm. author, professor, war crime. Yeah, <laughs> drug smuggler, former drug smuggler, former, former drug, drug smuggler. smuggler. Yep, an all around cool Southern California big wave surfer. And you guys went caroling. Yeah, so we, we went caroling with Ren and Ashley uh-huh. Chapman uh-huh. and uh, another one of our mutual friends, Bruce. Whose idea was it to go caroling? Ashley's. Ashley's? Yeah. You know how she's that free Was spirit. it impulsive or was it planned? No. Her and Sarah were She got there out. and said, here's your sheet music. Uh, we're going next 100%. door. 100%. Fla, la, la, Yeah, la, no, la. This, was, this was completely planned. <laughs> but no, it was fun, man. You know, I spent the whole weekend doing the Nutcracker with the girls and they killed wow, it, by the way. that's amazing. Dude. Did you have to dress up like an elf or anything for your caroling? <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you dress up? That's a great no, question. No, no, no. Nobody that did. Really makes it, you know? Yeah. There's the music, but then there's the whole visual appeal, too. Mm. Yeah. Are, would you would you go caroling? Absolutely, yes. Without a gun to your head, you'd go do it, just like volunteer to go caroling. Uh, my girls could get me to do just about anything, really? so yeah. yeah I you're... have a terrible voice. My voice is so bad, they don't let me sing the birthday song. <laughs> so I just would kind of hide in the background and just fa-la-la along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't care. Fa-la-fa-la yeah. fa-la along. Yeah, but, but I bet you'd make a great front man. Like, you'd be a really good showman. The voice might not you know, oh yeah, I, I might I might have to throw in a little dance or something just to keep everybody entertained. But the voice would definitely not impress anybody. Now you're a girl dad too, as well. That's right, full girl dad. You have Absolutely. two or three? Two girls. Two girls. Yeah, well, three if you count my wife. She's yeah, girl yeah, yeah, too. yeah. So the, all all three of us share that in common: wife and two girls. Yeah, and that's awesome. How yeah. do we? How do we? Get any oxygen. How do we get ourselves into these situations? <laughs> yeah, yeah, how do we get ourselves into these situations? Have you? How old are your daughters, David? So Grace is seven, Olivia is twelve. Okay, so my Olivia is seven, and then Madeline is three. So mm-hmm. your his daughters age, his are age very close. Are seven, yeah. yeah. Can Can you guys school me from an older, like more OG perspective of having two girls and a wife? Wait, how- let me let me light my yeah wisdom pipe. Yeah, yeah. Smoke your corn cob <clears throat> pipe. When all three of them require your undivided attention at the exact same time, how the hell do you deal with that? Like, I would start with who's ever loudest. Okay. But if nobody's being the loudest, then you would default to black six, the okay, wife. Okay, the wife first. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But so, so priority number one is who's loud, and then you work your way down. There was a moment. There was a moment over the weekend where my wife was where you're sitting. My eldest is right here, and my youngest is popped up in the middle. And all of them are talking to me at the exact same time. And I had such sensory overload. I I, I didn't even know what to do. I just froze. I think I just turned into a medical professional. It's airway, breathing, then circulation. (laughs) Yeah, right. So whoever's threat is is you know critical level alpha one. You know that's that's what you take care of first. I think the wolf that's closest to the shed. Hey, so. We should introduce 
introduce our guest. You think so? I do. It was a perfect segue. Our guest, our guest. <laughs> There's no segue. There I'm no just segue. like, let's we're, introduce we're, we're a show free of segues. Our guest is David Reeser, CEO and founder of Opiate. David, can you just like give give our audience your 60 second like <clears throat> spiel? Like, where'd you? How'd you get to Wilmington? Let's start with that. Sure. So, um, Wilmington was kind of a surprise stop for us. My wife. And I, we knew we didn't want to live in Pennsylvania anymore because we had pretty much had it with the terrible winters. Because it's Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, it's Pennsylvania, and you know it snows, and you have like 18 inches on the ground. You can't get anywhere. Um, so we just looked around the country and said, you know, where could we live that we'd really be happy? We knew we wanted to be by the water, and um, we knew we wanted to have you know a better quality of life, which Pennsylvania is great. It just wasn't for us anymore. So uh, th- with a recommendation from a friend, they said, hey, check out Wilmington, North Carolina. It's a beautiful spot. It's by the beach. It's affordable to live there. And we're like, okay, we'll check it out for the weekend. We came down for a long weekend, and uh, we loved it so much. And on the third day, we put an offer on a house like while we were away for the weekend. I had to go back and sell all of our stuff and, and basically make our way down some like nine months later. So it's kind of a crazy story, but I, I usually tell people, my wife told me get in the car. And then we left. <laughs> so what happened because at the time I was a contractor, so we could basically live where we wanted to live. What year was this? So this was 2016. Okay. So I've been here for about five years. Have you taken like big leaps of faith like that before in the past? Oh, I've, everything in my life has been big leaps of faith. Okay. So I mean, I don't really see any difference. And honestly, I think it's one of these things of, you know, just coming to a level of maturity of knowing who you are and the trajectory that you're on. Some things just make sense, and you pull the trigger. So I knew that it was time to transition, you know, and I don't have any problem turning pages, you know, turning chapters because of part of my story. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes people, I feel like, don't make those big jumps because maybe they don't recognize what that feeling is like that you just that you just touched on. Can you, like, what what does that feel like to you when you're like, okay, all things are coming together. I feel a chapter closing. I see a new door opening. How does that like, what does that feel like to you? Hmm. That's a great. That's a great question. We're definitely getting existential here. So, uh, yeah, let's let's <laughs> let's go there. I think that's good, though. So, it it feels logical to me. Let's put it that way, because I know when things are coming to a close. Just like in school, when the when the semester is coming to a close, you know, you have to complete your assignments. You take a, a semester exam and you pass it. And you move on to the next thing. Like, I can just see signs in my life when I know that relationships or, a, or an error in life is coming to an end. And it's bittersweet and you enjoy it, but you say, you say thank you for the opportunity and you welcome the new one. Mm. So for me, it feels very logical. I knew that I was wrapping up my time there. I just didn't know exactly what that next step was. And when the light shone in front of me and I could see the next step, I said goodbye to what I knew and I stepped into, you know, the quote-unquote unknown but what I did know would be the, the right path, if that makes sense. Did, did you grow up in Pennsylvania? Was that your, your ancestral? Uh, ancestral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so born, born and raised in PA. Okay. What about your wife? Same. Same, born and raised in PA. She, she grew up in a little country town called Oli. Shout out to Oli, Pennsylvania. Oh, man. Cows and corn, baby. We're about to see downloads say- <laughs> spike in Oli, Pennsylvania. Oli, Pennsylvania. Josh, let's make sure we geofence this episode. Yeah, yeah. She, she's a good old girl from Oli, Pennsylvania, and I was a, a kid from Boyertown, although we moved a lot as kids, but mm-hmm. we lived you know, all over kind of southeastern PA. So what was that like leaving your home? 
everything that y'all knew to go to a place that you knew, presumably knew nobody and really knew nothing about <clears throat> other than I feel good when I'm here. What, what, what inspires like a person to do that? And, and how difficult is it to actually go through with that? Well, it's tough, but I knew we were going to be able to drag some family here. So mm. <laughs> that yeah, we, that's we, not a hard sell. Uh, right? we, uh, yeah, I kind of had that front loaded before we left that that was going to work out that way. So I knew that we'd have family in town. Um, so that was that was quite advantageous. But uh, aside from that, I just knew that in order for me to to personally and professionally grow, I had to currently at you know where we lived because I didn't feel like I could become who I was becoming in the place that. I, I was, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like people only knew me as David. I worked in healthcare, you know. Like I was like your the, environment wasn't inspiring you. It too. wasn't inspiring, me. and there actually right. there wasn't there wasn't any upward trajectory available for me mm. there. And and people were too stuck in the past of what they thought about me, where they couldn't see where I was going, but I could. And I knew that it just can happen there. It's almost like trying to plant a palm tree in Pennsylvania. You, you just know the soil isn't right for that root, you know. And uh, in order to transplant myself somewhere I'd, I could be successful, certain elements had to be in place. And when I came here, I just saw enough ingredients to realize that, you know, that, that the soil here was good enough for me to put roots down in it. And we were right. You know, and it wasn't immediate. Just like anything, it takes time. But um, it definitely was the right move. Now, is your wife, does she have a profession outside of the, the home? Yeah. So my wife, my wife, first of all, is an amazing wife, an amazing mom. Shout out to Kristen. Reeser, my girl. Um, she's an amazing mom, amazing homeschool teacher, amazing wife, but she's also a professional writer. And um, she's ghost wrote books for individuals and uh, she writes for magazines and newspapers and stuff. But, but yeah, she does it completely on her own accord and the things that she's most interested in, but she's a phenomenal writer. Is she going to write yeah. a book, a ghost write a book for you? Yeah, actually, yeah. yeah we, we started to write something that I thought was a book on sales. I don't know why I started there, but it really was a... <laughs> Kind of interesting little twist. I've always wanted to write a sales book. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 just pick kinda... up the damn phone. That's what my book is going to yeah, be. Yeah, no, but it really isn't. You know, we it was it was more about you know influence and like you know how how we come to understand value, you know, both in our world and ourselves and in the, the things that we do. And uh, as we started to unwrap this, literally, we we pulled out a funny story. We we took a pizza box one time when we were away, my wife and I, because we had nothing to write on. She ripped the top off the pizza box, and we just started, like, bubbling out what this book would be about, you know. And I was just telling stories of things that I've learned along my, my path, and she framed it in a way that it would be logical and interesting to the reader. Mm. So that eventually is going to become manuscript at some point. But uh, I've got some more important things to do before telling any kind of story. Do you, do you guys often do that where it's like you and her are kind of partnering up together on yeah. projects? We bounce things off of each other constantly because we're a team. Mm. But um, not, not in that respect so much. I, we try to separate my professional world you know, from, from our you know, collaborative interactions because it can get really overwhelming. But, of course... I data dump on her on a daily basis, things that are going on and, and bounce things off of her, but she's not actively involved in any of that. Yeah. Yeah. But how good is that? Because I do the same thing with my wife. I'm like, I'm just, I'm working through something. Will you help me do it? Mm -hmm. You know, and she just gives perspectives that I never would have even considered. And then all of a sudden I arrive at something much better than what I was thinking about. I mean, how, like for people who are, how long have y'all been married for? 
We've been married for 15 years okay. in April. Okay, okay. March, and she, actually. So she's been there through all many of those leaps of faith. Of course. So, you know, my wife does the exact same thing. Like, I'll be like, hey, I'm, I, I, I feel like I need to do this. Like, my story's so similar to yours, David. I was mm. in Atlanta. We grew up in that area. I was done. Like, I felt like I had just given all I had to give to a corporation, and I just felt... I don't know, stuffed into a suit that I didn't want to be in anymore. And it was like, if I'm going to really do this the right way, I have to go somewhere new where I don't know anybody. I have to put down new roots and I have to just be completely creative and completely free and totally untethered from what my responsibilities, whether they were real or imagined from where home was. And she supported me in all of those. And, and I feel like a lot of people also don't jump because there isn't spousal buy-in to, to do that stuff sometimes. How did you guys, like, come to that? Like, what's that? Without letting us too yeah, much Yeah, no, no, marriage, you, you like, definitely, well, I'm just, th- I'm just kind of walking through what you just told me, which thank you for sharing your story with me. You know, there's power in our story. Because uh-huh. uh, obviously, you know, it's, it's personal to you, means something to you, but also someone is likely walking through this right now. So it's obviously very impactful. So, um, you know, I, I feel like it becomes one of these things where there has to be a trust in yourself first in order even for your spouse to be able to put that trust in you because it really is a big move and a new one. And there's going to be things where even if you do a lot of research ahead of time, you're just not going to know or mm. understand or appreciate. And I definitely didn't do it the right way, and I'll share with you why that is the case. But I felt like I was ready to swim. You know what I mean? I had learned enough survival skills, if you will, in in the professional wild that I knew I had plenty of things to fall back on if things didn't quote unquote work out, right? And uh, my wife believed in me too because she see me walk through some pretty tremendous challenges. And God willing, you know, I've I've been successful in all of them, you know, in one form or fashion. So she believed that I could overcome, but it put a tremendous stress on our relationship. You know, a tremendous stress, you know, on our ability to communicate. Like, it was really tough in the beginning because I don't think I was prepared coming here and starting new businesses because I was, I anticipated I was going to be able to be a contractor in the same fashion that I was up north, but the market changed in the process of me selling a house and moving down here. So I had to start over again, you know, and it essentially took me 18 months to really become a profitable contributor the way I was used to being. And uh, that was tough. Mm. It was definitely tough. And it tested our marriage, but also made it stronger. You know, now we're in a position where she knows and we both feel confident that it's always going to work out. You know, it may not be the same picture of, you know, completion that we may see at the end and and be totally happy about it. But uh, we know that everything is going to play out and that we can survive anything together. You know, and I feel like it made our relationship stronger. It helped us to be able to be... uh, more wise to offer advice to support each other in different ways and kind of know like you know when we need to uh step aside and let the other person kind of figure it out a little bit you know and not offer as much opinion if you will Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's a it's a delicate balance and it's really tough in the beginning but you have to this becomes one of these scenarios and i'm sorry if i'm talking too fast or Mm -hmm. not the pace isn't right but i think it becomes one of these scenarios of understanding what love actually is you know, it's not a feeling because if you were waiting for it to be a feeling each day, I think I think you're going to be really disappointed in the tough times. But it's a decision. In my mind, it's a decision. You decide that you're going to love that person and support them. Mm-hmm. You know, so there were times my wife was definitely not thinking I was her favorite person. Let's just put it that way. And uh, But we're completely on the other side of that. She's my best friend. I love my wife. I love my girls. I have an amazing, 
amazing, blessed life. Like I literally couldn't ask for it better. I think about it every day. I really do, you know, and I get to do something I genuinely love. I love working in healthcare. I love caring for people. I love building things that mean something, you know, and doing it in the spirit of love for the individual, you know, and I feel like we've come a, a tremendous, tremendously long way. Is that, is that uh, where like the idea for opiate kind of started? Yeah, the, the spirit of opiate is a love for my neighbor. It's literally as simple as that. I want to see my neighbors come home at night. You know, and when I looked in my backyard, Wilmington, I consider Wilmington, North Carolina, to be my home, right? Not the place that I live now. I'm not from Boyertown right, anymore. I'm from Wilmington. You know, this is my home, and I wanted to see it be as, as amazing a place to live and to work as it can be. And I looked in my backyard a few years ago and said, wow, why are all these people dying? Like, what are, we, what are we getting wrong? I worked in healthcare. We wouldn't accept the type of outcomes we get here from opiate addiction or anything else. We wouldn't accept those outcomes in any other area of medicine. We wouldn't. And uh, I just thought, I was like, there's something we got to do. It's almost like seeing a child in the street about to get hit by a car. You're just going to stand there and do nothing or use the strength and speed and the wit that you have to prevent it from happening. That's amazing, man. So give us the origin story of, of opiate, right? Because you were in healthcare, healthcare professional, um, and, and obviously, I mean, the why to do it so foundationally secure um, in making a, a, a big decision like that. Because you're, you're really, we were talking about a little bit before the show, kind of upending uh, in some regard the way that addiction is treated, Right. So, so t like, tell us a little bit about, about what it is, what it does, and, and then more importantly, like, just how you got to there. Okay, cool. So if I get a little too nerdy, because I can go from, you know, speaking about the genesis of OPA to getting in the weeds of, of how the technology works, which really doesn't, it's not as important. So, <clears throat> so back in 2018, I formed OPA. My, I was a co-founder of OPA. Stan Martin was an additional co-founder. Um, Back in 2018, started opiate because we saw this genuine need in, in Wilmington. And six months prior to that, uh, which really is the beginning, is um, we, we, we looked at this, this substance use disorder problem, opioid addiction, in Wilmington. We're like, man, this is a humongous problem. Like, why is it so bad? Like, I didn't actually even understand it. I come from healthcare. You know, we had our own stigmas about this, you know, which were, are not founded in data. It's just misinformation. But what we did was we every month we had these monthly uh, stakeholder meetings, if you will, where we had police officers and judges and, and treatment professionals, people in care, their family members, like a, a number of different people, scientists, behavioral psychologists, you name it. We got together every month at Tech Mountain. You know, we had these monthly meetings, and by the, by the sixth month, we had like 50 people in the room, you know, all weighing in on what they thought, you know, were, were – textures and uh, of the of the problem from their perspective and we basically put this together and said you know what there's probably a way utilizing technology where we could implement something here that to create a positive outcome you know so let's go ahead and start this company let's start opiate and we and when we first started opiate the thought process was well let's let's help people at that very moment the darkest moment in their life when they're literally overdosing when they're dying like they're sitting there dying so I, um, I, put a, I applied for a, some patent protection around a device, and we basically 
drew this device up that ha would have the capacity to have onboard naloxone, Narcan, essentially on the device mm -hmm. and inject it directly into someone's arm using microneedles when it sensed that someone's SpO2 dropped below 80% and their heart rate was, you know, in the upper 40s, knowing that they're likely overdosing. And um, that's where what we were originally going to do. We were going to develop this life-saving device. Long and behold, uh, getting something like that to market uh, is next to impossible mm. to get F FDA approval on, and it costs somewhere around $50 million. So I was like, maybe this isn't the way for us to do this. Drop in the bucket. Yeah. <laughs> so we're like, we're like, what other ways can we, can we do this? I even applied for some federal funding for the National Institute of Health to develop this device, and um, there wasn't a real hunger for something like that. Why not? Um, well, mostly because FDA will not, will not approve a closed-loop device for detection of opioid use disorder or for uh, overdose and reversal. And it's just because it's it's kind of like a hiccup on the hardware side uh, for FDA, which I'm sure there's somebody out there, FDA, thinking, oh, that's not the exact reason. I'm not an FDA consultant. Yeah. But the long story short is um, it's just very challenging because I actually work with a researcher who's essentially created a more sophisticated closed-loop system, and they won't approve him either. Mm. So anyway, I could yeah. go on for a while about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so so like just to kind of set the the context, yes. I think there was like a hundred thousand opiate deaths in twenty twenty overdoses, mm -hmm. um, and you so you saw that here locally in the Wilmington area as being <coughs> more than what your conscience would allow you to not go do something about, right? Am I summarizing that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. So yeah. so. Yeah, in, in this past calendar year, there have been over 100,000 confirmed overdose deaths. Wow. You know, and that's, a, I believe, a 30% increase from the 12-month period before. How do you think we got to that? Let's, let's start there. Yeah. How does that happen? Because we weren't dealing with this 10, 15, 20 years ago, were we? Um, it, it actually did start about 20 years okay. ago. But uh, it, it really got bad the last 12, I would say, <clears throat> uh, depending on how you define bad. But it became a terrible of unignorable tragedy in the last 12 years. And really, the, the genesis of all this, just like most things in the world, is that we put profit before people. I mean, it's literally as simple as that. We put profit before people. We put making profits ahead of making sure that our citizens were safe. Right. I was just talking to Josh, our production guy, earlier before the show, but um, that creepy seven-minute infomercial on OxyContin that was shot back in the late 90s. And they're profiling like four or five different ac like actual patients that used it for whatever chronic issues they had. And it's this beautiful video. And, you know, part of it was um, I saw it in a documentary or a news report where they basically followed those individuals like into 2015 or whenever it was made and like, Three out of five of them were dead. Really? And, like, one was heart failure and the other two were overdose. I mean, it was just super creepy. But the, but it was made to look like this beautiful, like, yeah. miracle drug. Oh, yeah, the way the way all, like, the, the drug commercials look. Like, take this one pill and you'll be canoeing with your loved one, right. you know? In, in, that in does exist. It's called it's ecstasy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matthew, this is a show about not doing opiates. I don't know where, I don't know where ecstasy oh, so you, ecstasy. you know what the reality falls. is, though? <laughs> not to break, you, break up the fun here, but the reality is opiates aren't evil. Yeah. 
Opiates are not evil. Yeah, not in. I mean, right, that's yeah, like saying no any, any inanimate object is good yeah, or bad. You yeah, can't, that's yeah. exactly it. Yeah, no, guns no, aren't. Evil. Yeah, it's the same as the gun argument, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I look at addiction. I'm just going to use the word addiction. I don't particularly love that word, but I'm going to use the addict. The word addiction. I think addiction is just an unhealthy relationship with a person, activity, or thing. Mm. I mean, that's just it. It's an unhealthy relationship. And in this case, we had an unhealthy relationship with a particularly powerful drug where its its power and its use cases were loosely defined, you know, in order to increase profit. And when they understood the ability, and I, I say they, in this case, when pharmaceutical companies and individuals interested in those companies being successful, so there are a lot of lot lots to, a lot of people to blame. When they saw that it was financially advantageous uh, to create an opportunity for them to generate more revenue and create more ambiguity about how what was actually happening, um, I don't remember where I was going with this. Anyway, well, no, um, we were talking about the sex appeal and how beautiful these commercials yeah, were, making it look like it was perfect. Yeah, it made it look it made it look beautiful, and they created groups to like hide what was actually happening. It was That's just creepy. It was it was it was it was organized. Mm. You know, it was like this organized level of accountability, like this hidden level of accountability. Where, where it was almost like I hate to compare it to this, but it kind of feels like it, like organized level of uh, making sure. Of, that the one level didn't know what the other level was doing, one hand didn't know what the other hand was right. doing. Almost like what happened Super with the gas chambers. You know, yeah. like, I don't do anything, I just push a button. Right. I don't do anything, I just drive this rail car. You know what I mean? It became the engineered accountability, you know? And at the end of the day, the, only the people in the pearly towers making the money who was so far from the problem, they didn't see the dying, right. you know, were, were perpetuating the issue, and that's what we have today, which, you know, I look at, I look at this whole, uh, this whole, crisis that we're having now this it's really epidemic you know we may have a vaccine for COVID-19 but we don't have one for addiction mm. you know so people continue to die every day every day in the U.S. 200 people pass away they overdose that's like a 747 going down every day yeah you know that would make the news every day and people wouldn't accept it but here we are right and in the U.S. you know we may make up a small population of the world but we consume 80 percent of the opiates produced why is that Right, some crazy statistics, but the reality is this: we can focus on the problem, or we can focus on on creating solutions. Yeah, you know, in my mind, I feel like this is a great opportunity to deliver people. Right, I see I see addiction as something people need to be freed from. We got to give them back their power. You know, something that's taken power from them, we got to give it back to them. Yeah, you know, so I'm about focusing on the okay. We're in a mess. Yeah. How do we clean this up? Right, you know, how do we give people back their power and their dignity. That's why I don't refer to anybody as an addict. They're my neighbor in recovery. Mm. You know what I mean? Everyone's my neighbor, but they're my neighbor in recovery. They're not an addict. You know, addiction is a physiologic response, not a moral failing, right? Anybody can become physiologically addicted to an opiate within five days. Anyone. It doesn't mean they will. Yeah. But they could. Yeah. Right? Knowing that that's the case and that it's just your body responding to what is being, uh, you know, given to it. Let's look at this a little bit differently. Let's frame this differently. You know, and the data proves it out. Are you are you a, a threat to the established order? I mean, there's people still making tons of money on opiates. Are you I'm not a threat? No, no, no. This is quiet innovation. Yeah, you know, we're just we're just working in the background, and one day everyone's going to wake up, and a uh, a cog within this clock, this wheel, is going to be removed, and a new one's going to be put in. And when they wake up, there'll be no removing it anymore. You know, what we're developing is the first real objective data of how someone is doing within the recovery that's tailored to them, a personalized approach. You know, so the reality is this. 
um, I don't feel like we're disrupting anything. I think we're adding a tool to the bag that just wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. That's it. How it gets utilized, technology is just a tool. Yeah. You know, it can makes things better, faster, and cheaper. That's it. So so is a shovel. Shovel's a tool. Yeah. You can dig a hole. <coughs> bless you. You can dig a hole, plant a tree that everybody can enjoy, or you can take that same shovel and knock your neighbor over the head with it, <laughs> right? How are you going to use it? Fair. Yeah. yeah. Weapon of opportunity. Yeah, weapon of opportunity, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. How, how are you going to utilize it, yeah. right? So in this case, I look at technology as an opportunity, you know, in this case, biometrics using wrist-worn devices, you know, and, and AI looking, analyzing data. We see that as an opportunity to do good. You know, and for those that want to utilize in that fashion, they'll have the opportunity to use utilize in that fashion. They yeah. choose not to use it. It's up to them too. It's all about free will. I don't see us disrupting the way it's being done. I just think we're going to make it better. What would be a what? What is the because you talked about outcomes? Like mm-hmm. for you personally, because I'm sure you have a number in your mind. How many? How what do you want to see uh, opiate effect? Like if we're dealing with a hundred thousand deaths, uh, what does that look like to you? What does the end state look like to you? Where you can go. Heck yeah, we did that, and we're having a positive outcome on people's a quality of life and uh, the length of life period. You know, frankly, that that people are getting. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah, I, I think there's. You can certainly put a quantitative measure to something like that. It might be reassuring because it's a very clear goal. Um, but I think the quantitative piece is more important. Like I, I don't, I'm not really interested in just achieving something financially advantageous or the being able to stand back and say, oh, we saved 100,000 people. Like, I want to do this, first of all, in a spirit that reflects my own beliefs, you know what I mean? And do it in a way that is honoring and people will see that it's honoring (coughs) to the people who are our neighbors in treatment. Um, But if I were to kind of put a a benchmark on on the success, um, I think what it would be is to make opiate, opiate available to anyone in treatment, whether they could pay or not pay. Like, that's my goal. I mm-hmm. want everyone to have access to this in one form or another. They're going to. I tell you, they're going to. And um, and and then have that play some role in, in their successful recovery and long-term recovery. You know, right now, and this is kind of what I, how I'm building this solution. Our team is building a solution. I'm not doing it personally. We're doing it as a team. So the OPA team is building the solution because we know that if we can help uh, one specific area called medically assisted treatment, it's essentially the gold standard uh, care for individuals being treated for opioid use disorder. If we can help uh, MAT be more effective in the first 12 weeks of treatment, uh, we know that research has scientifically proven uh, that those individuals have much better long-term outcomes. So our initial goal, if I were to set a benchmark myself, is instead of having one out of three people that's the national average. Mm-hmm. One out of three people stabilize the first 12 weeks in treatment. I want to make it two out of three, just one more person. If we can make the average two out of three people stabilize in the first 12 weeks, we'll change the world. Mm. No question about it. Mm. And that's really our goal. All of our data science, our platform, the way we built this is to improve that first piece. Long term, I've got much bigger plans, but that's the first goal. Now, mm-hmm. is the device and the technology, is it and maybe you can't answer this, but is, is it like intended for like long-term use or is it really just during that initial three month or six month phase from being sober? Like wait, what, what's, what's the strategic uses of it, I guess? So initially the, the goal with, um, cause there's really two components that we're working on. One is a, a decision support tool, if you will. 
Um, you can think about it as like training wheels for the doctor, which certain physicians are trained uh, to treat just substance use disorder and they're experts at it. Others are just kind of thrown into it because we have such a big problem. It's not their area of specialty. So I'm using data science to extract data out of their electronic health records to just help them guide their decision making so that they can catch people before they relapse. Just basic stuff, you know? But then the other piece is strictly biometric. So utilizing a device agnostic platform. So if you have a Fitbit, an Apple Watch, whatever it is that you're wearing, utilizing the hardware that the patient already has, you know, we're utilizing these, these over-the-counter devices, essentially, to analyze the data in order to identify uh, individuals who are struggling with withdrawal symptoms and quantifying it in a metric fashion so that um, they can get better and more focused, personalized care early in treatment. So initially, we're designing it for early entrance into medically-assisted treatment. So we're thinking like the first six months, essentially, of medically assisted treatment to help guide that time, which is a very difficult time and, and most of the time when individuals will relapse and actually overdose uh, within the first couple of weeks. It's kind of a very uh, tricky time to navigate appropriately. But beyond that, beyond that is my hope that this same platform, um, the same biometric, personalized biometric insight can be utilized five years down the road by the same individual you know, utilizing these devices like they're being utilized for exercise now or sleep quality. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll get uh, insights into their recovery, you know, things that have caused them to potentially crave in the past being around familiar people, places, and things, and a, a kind of like a seismic activity, if you will, in like their triggers. waveforms. Yeah, triggers. But something that would kind of like see the, like the little tremors that happen before a big earthquake. Right, so that you don't see those stories where it's like, I just don't know what happened. Mm. You know, they've been clean for four years. You know, there was no signs that like I don't even think they were stressed, and they went and overdosed. But there were the signs underneath the skin Absolutely. level. Absolutely, yeah. hundred percent. Absolutely, just just below the surface, and and sometimes people are not or feel it but don't say it. You know, and sometimes they don't even know it. Mm. But what if we knew it? What if they got a trigger? What if there was AI in the background letting them know and their support team around them, which you had referenced a little bit mm -hmm. about earlier, you know, a support team around them that said, hey, you know, Tim, Jennifer, you know, John, Jennifer, whoever, you know, they're not doing so well right now. You know, and this was all permission based, based on right. what our Yeah, so as the therapy is part of it, they build a communication framework around, they select my doctor, my dad, my wife, and my best friend, you guys can all access this information? Access, or to, and to whatever level that they're comfortable with too, right? So that this community of care around them, their support community around them in, in the recovery, you know, they, they could get notifications that were appropriate to their level of interaction, i.e. physician could see, you know, cardiac waveform right. data, you know, interpreted behavioral data, you know, whereas their, their mom might just see, you know, the, the little speed dial saying that, you know, he's in the red zone right yeah. now. Like, he's not feeling Even like a little all. text message that says, hey, give Matt a call right like now. Like a dashboard. Yeah, literally, yeah, yeah, Literally yeah. as simple as that. So, yeah, we are building a patient-facing dashboard mm -hmm. to do this very thing. And then for the individual in treatment, they can share whatever they want to share. They don't have to share anything. It's completely up to them. Um, but at the same time, it gives them a, a front-facing view of their own recovery, where they are in their trajectory. Yeah. You know, the fact that they're maybe in a danger zone and to ask them basic questions that we know are important. Hey, when was the last time you exercised? Mm. Do you know diet. what I mean? What's your diet look like right now? Yeah. yeah, simple things, you know, cognitive behavior therapy, which is well understood, and try to identify these, these patterns that lead to them relapsing. 
right? So they can utilize that data years out, past, way past them even seeing a clinic or a clinician. It's fascinating. This is absolutely fascinating. You said something that I want to go back to because I think it's um, uh, important to, to isolate it and talk about it specifically. And I think it goes more into your process, maybe your mindset. You know, I asked you about qualitative versus quantitative results. And, and you said something to the effect, which is a lesson that I got very, very early on from an early mentor of mine. Basically, it summarized to this. If you do the right things, it's impossible to get the wrong results. Mm. Was that Tom? No, that wasn't Tom. That was Greg. Shout out to Greg Free. <laughs> not, not Tom Blevins. Not Tom Blevins or Tim Blevins, or Tom Reichert or Tim Reichert. Um, is that, do you, do you feel that's kind of how you lead to as well? Like, I'm going to put the right people. We see the mission. We understand the objective. Let's just do the stuff and not focus on what that number looks like or what that data necessarily looks like for us to point back to and say, okay, yeah, we're successful right now. Yeah, that's essentially it. Put people, people before profit, right? Do things with excellence, you know, and take a scientific approach. Do your work, do your research, don't guess, you know, and just do the next right thing. And it will build momentum on itself and the place you find yourself, the destination that you set for yourself and where you actually arrive is a good place. And it'll be profitable. You know, it'll be all the things it needs to be. But you got to start out with a why. Like, I have a true north question at Opiate. It's literally this simple because there's a lot of things that we're doing. It's complex. I mean, it's data science, right? Um, it's not rocket science, which I'm sure is harder, or uh, musical theory. But data science is pretty hard, <laughs> right? <laughs> but there's a simple true north question we have, and is, will this help my neighbor in recovery? I ask myself that, especially difficult decisions where I'm not quite sure. Will this help my neighbor? If it's no... I put it out of my mind, move on to the next thing. And that, that, that cuts my decisions down in half. And if it's a yes, is it now? Or at what point does it make sense? Like, where is this intersection with this solution, person, or opportunity, you know, in the future? And then I just mark it down. I need to revisit this in March. You know, and in doing that, I always keep the focus on my neighbor, you know, so that everything is geared toward that and everything that we do is congruent with that end goal in mind. And everything else will work itself out. Josh, will you pull that last minute to minute and a half for me? I'm just going to play that in the mornings. That was, yeah, that was eloquent. Yeah. Oh, thank no, you. Yeah. It was deep. No, it's, 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 did you, how long, like at what point in your career did you come to that understanding that, like, that's how I'm going to lead my organizations? Wow. Um, that's a great question. I would say, so before I started Opiate, I had built an IT company here called IT Works Wilmington. We basically offered cloud infrastructure to doctors, attorneys, local government. And uh, I moved into, you know, a CEO position. I mean, we were a two-person company. You know, I was like CTO, CEO. It felt, <laughs> it felt fun. I'm a new AKA, Yeah, it's two, two-person company. housekeeping. The, the reality is, though, like we had a nice – that's a nice company. That's a nice company. And we had, we had some pretty legit clients, too. I mean, it was pretty cool. But kind of get back to your question is, like, I just decided then – you know, since I was in a position of real leadership, I was like, I'm just going to do the right thing. Like, we can be high tech, high touch, and do the right thing. And it always pays out, pays off. Because this is the thing, people, you, you can get, you can do the wrong things, get really wealthy for a short time. But if you still want to be in the game 10 years later, you better be taking care of people. That's just the truth. It doesn't matter what the industry is or what decade it is, mm. you know. And we all make decisions emotionally, um, or we all buy emotionally, but we make decisions intellectually, right? So I knew that 
I knew that taking that approach was going to lead to long-term successes, but, which is what I was interested in. I came to this community and made it my home. I don't want people wanting to kick me out six months later. Um, I don't know if that's really a direct mm. answer to your question. But with opiate, opiate like got back to my roots in healthcare, and that's one of the reasons it was directly interesting to me. You know, I remember very clearly that um, I was trained first as an x-ray tech and then as an MRI technologist. And I remember always being very compassionate with patients. And honestly, like when I was two, I knew I wanted to be a physician when I was two years old. And like, I still want to be a physician. I, I plan on when I'm done opiate, I'm probably going to go back to medical school when I'm 50. Like I'm wait till my kids are old <laughs> enough. Yeah, that's awesome. Bit. Yeah, no, I'm serious. Yeah. My wife knows too. But um, I have a couple classes I have to take before taking the MCATs and everything. But um, I plan on going back to, <clears throat> to medical school when I'm 50. And uh, I just think about it. Back in the day when I graduated from x-ray school, they worked us like dogs. <laughs> like dogs. And they were like, oh, David's so compassionate. Like, he'll he'll burn out of that mm, and like yeah. kind of settle in like the rest Caregiver of us. Caregiver fatigue or whatever. Yeah, or yeah, just, yeah, yeah. But the reality is you just get to the point, like a lot of folks get to the point where they burn out a little bit. So they try to balance being compassionate with, you know, uh, doing their job, quote unquote, and just getting through it. I was never that way. I was very heavy on compassion. But because of that, I was really excellent at what I did. And people wanted me to work with them because they knew I cared about them like like they're my brother or sister. Mm. And uh, that never wore off. And I brought that into OPA too. So I really think about the people who are suffering. Like I, I really wanted to design this and implement it too in a way that's really thought worthy of them. And when I go back to medical school too, I'm going to come out and practice, and I plan on being like a medical missionary. My wife's gonna write their stories, and we already planned this out. I'm gonna travel different places and set up clinics. I'm not taking insurance, I'm doing my own things. I won't really need the money. And um, my wife's gonna write their stories, and I just wanna care for them that's high tech, high touch, yeah. and just you know all heart, because AI can't replace human interaction. The whole new Doctors Without Borders concept, right? Yeah, pretty much, I, yeah. I plan on doing Doctors Without yeah. Borders. Yeah. 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 Get Jenna and I in on that. You know, my wife is an FNP and I, we were sitting in church the other day and I was like, you know what, when we, when we finally get the time, like, let's just go, like, she loves doing that. She loves caring for people. I don't know anything about it, but I'll, I'll go with her. I'll provide security or something like that, whatever's needed for me. Um, but uh, but when you get to that point, if you need if you need another provider, Jen will be the first one. Oh, that I appreciate you can that. That'd be we'll, awesome. We'll travel with you all day long. I've done a mission. I've done missions work before and it's, it's super fun incredibly rewarding like I can see myself I mean I, I try working out the numbers I'm, I'm a balance between dreamer and execution mm. you know what I mean because you can dream but a dream is just a yeah a dream until you know it becomes a plan and then you actually execute on it so you know I've, I've set these goals up for myself God willing I'll, I'll have the opportunity to execute on them but I plan on doing that till I'm done I'm gonna ride that pony all the way out but um, opiate is is uh, my focus right now. I've cut out all everything else. I've sold, you know, my other business uh, or my equity, in my other business. I've cut out any possible distraction. This is my hundred percent focus, outside of my my family and my faith. So, hundred uh, percent focus on opiate and helping people. Good for you, dude. So, what's like the next uh, evolution of it? Like, where are you guys at in terms of getting it to the market mm -hmm. at scale? So uh, this is where we're at currently. We finished our version one software of our decision support tool. Uh, it's integrated currently into an EHR called Cario. 
So our goal is to establish key relationships into in order to expand that within the uh, the network of providers and other electronic health record systems of clinicians that treat substance use disorder in order to gain outcomes data that can take back to insurance companies. I know that's a mouthful, y'all. No, 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 no. I got it. Um, Matt didn't get it. Poor Matt. Matt, man, Matt's, I appreciate it. Sorry, I'm front loaded with Matt's, this stuff. Matt's our high touch leader. I'm the high tech leader. Right. Well, clearly. I'll give you. I'll give you the high tech stuff. So I'll tell you the other I thing. Have that's, an iPhone. I'll tell you the other thing that's a little more. More fun and, and maybe actionable is that uh, opiate is now constructing a clinical trials uh, phase two. Um, we're applying for uh, what's called a small business innovation research grant phase through two through the National Institute of Health. Uh, when we submit that, uh, we'll hopefully be starting a, a phase two clinical trial in um, September of 2022. And what this is is a world's first, actually. And uh, what we're developing is a biometric algorithm that is device agnostic. So using essentially any device, you know, our platform will be able to normalize that data to be able to quantify withdrawal and essentially suggest um, what to do with that data mm. to physicians so that they can do what's called a just-in-time intervention, basically see people as they're relapsing or before they're relapsing and, and, and see how their biometrics can be used to guide their treatment process. In doing that, it's, it'll be the first ever FDA-approved algorithm to do that worldwide. Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot of buzz and a lot of interest around that uh, because it could significantly change outcomes, which means our neighbors come home at night. Yeah. So if we crack the, the code on that, which we, we have a, a proof of concept that we've developed as a result of our phase one funding, um, but if we can prove it out and commercialize in phase two, that's when things are going to get real interesting, will be the next potential big thing. And I don't... I, I see I see the success. I know that's where I live, um, but I'm also a realist. You know, lots of things can be happen between now and then. But we're on track to be the first FDA approved company uh, to create biometrics around substance use disorder. If that happens, we will change the world. There's no question about it. No question about Dude, it. Dude, that's unreal. I don't know that I've been in, in as close proximity uh, to what you're feeling right now like yeah yeah in that close proximity to being to a person that's that close to like really oh, oh i thought you meant the creativity behind it i mean i've been the... i've been close to him at <laughs> other times in the community but not like like that i mean that's a lot of that's big there's Gnarly. a lot of gravity that goes into that that's incredible dude. now see if a marine you know how you know a marine did not like because we would have written it in crayon that <laughs> yeah. and as soon as we detected any issues, we would have just made this device that automatically handcuffed us, and it would be like, "All right, <laughs> situation's <laughs> neutralized. You're done. We it's have time. Down. It's locked down. We're good. We can get to him." Man, that's uh, that's impressive, dude. It really just boils down to that's incredibly impressive, and we're rooting for every single success that we hope is coming your way. Not because it edifies you in any way. Um, obviously, you're the visionary of it because it changes lives. You know, I think we've gotten to a point maybe within society where we um, we uh, are in love with celebrity a little bit too much. And it's like, well, let's let's take it down a couple notches and like, let's look at at community and how are we impacting community each and every day? I think about that all the time. I'm really concerned about legacy. It sounds like you're kind of you think along those lines too as well, that it's not so much about what can, what can I make my life look like, but how will I be remembered, you know, when my time is done? You know, as well as I don't care if anybody remembers me. Yeah. I don't care if they remember a name. I literally don't care. Um, I don't even care if they remember the name of the company. None of this is important to me. 
All I want to know is that I gave my very best. Mm. And I feel like we were all born with skills and abilities and that they weren't given to us for us to benefit from them directly, but they were given to help somebody next to us. So as much as it's in my power, I'm going to use all my energy, all my creativity, everything that I got to pay it forward. And if I'm remembered for it, great. If I'm not, I very literally don't care. In fact, I'd rather you not remember me or anything that I did as long as I know that I, I did my best. That's it. Yeah. I'm not going to say. The two can coexist I mean, though, right? You can do your best. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. No. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. And we, lots of great things can happen from this, but ultimately, you know, you have to be focused. You know, I want to make sure we build something that's meaningful you know, and, and set it up in such a way that has an opportunity to thrive. It's like you don't want to put a tree in a pot. It's yeah. only going to get so big. Yeah. yeah. Right? So I want to be able to plant this somewhere where it has the ability to grow just like me, put it in good soil, you know, and give people access to it and make it an opportunity that people could benefit for years to come like a tree. Yeah. Don't, you put, know? don't put a palm tree in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. Don't put a palm tree in Pennsylvania. And nobody remembers who plants the tree, but everyone gets to enjoy it. Yeah. You know, so that's where I'm thinking, uh, I just want to plant some trees. You need to write a book, bro. <laughs> I mean, hey, Kristen, where are you? Have you been present for the past? <laughs> Manuscript is sitting on the back of a pizza box right Yeah, now. it's in a pizza box. Do you remember the brand of pizza? I was going to ask you what color yeah, gosh yeah. So uh, uh, I, feel, I feel bad about this, but we were in Carolina Beach, and we stayed at the Hampton Inn. It's the place right around the corner. So if you're right around the corner from the Hampton Inn, uh, shout out to your pizza shop. I can't remember the name. Yeah. Of it. The pizza was Michelangelo's? amazing. Michelangelo's? It might be Michelangelo's. Was it on Lake Park or was it on the bull or was it on it was the boardwalk? Right, you could you could walk it from from the hotel right there and it is like right on the boardwalk there, right next to Brits Donuts. Yes. Yeah. What's the name of that place? I don't know. It's, I don't it's, really it's, they sold it and it's something else now. But yes, we've had pizza there and it was amazing. Well, here, the pizza's awesome. This episode is sponsored by the pizza place that's right down the street <laughs> from the Hampton Inn, right in next to Brits Donuts. If you're near Brits Donuts, <laughs> please bring us a pizza so we remember your name. When yeah, we yeah, free yeah. Advertising. Mention Signal Fire radio, you might get a inquisitive look on your face. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, I'm supposed to get 10% off because yeah, I listened to the episode and you guys sponsored it. I have no idea. It's brilliant. <laughs> David, awesome. thank you so very much for coming on, dude. I, we, we've been chasing you for like six months to try to get you to come on. And this is going to be our final episode of 2021. Oh, wow. Cool. And it feels, Josh is shaking his head. It feels like it's like, yes, yeah, like this, 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 not this. It feels like it's a really nice end cap to our year, man. And it just... Uh, I'm excited uh, for ourselves for 2022. I'm excited for you for 2022 and every single person that's listened to this podcast. Thank you for sticking with us for this entire year as thank we you. grew and we figured it out. And hopefully you'll continue to listen well beyond because I don't have any intent on stopping this, Matt. Do you? Can't stop, won't stop. Can't buddy. stop, won't stop. Uh-uh, uh-uh. All right, man. Love it. Yeah, David, thanks for coming on. That's going to do it for this episode of Signal Fire Radio. Until next time, Matthew, and actually until next year, go out and strengthen your body. Oh, I messed up the... Expand your body. Expand your body. (laughs) Expand your body. Go out and strengthen... Shoot, Matt, I'm going to do it. Go out and feed your mind. There we go. Strengthen your body, enrich your spirit, and grow your tribe, and go be a Signal Fire in your community. And, and find yourself a Josh that will clean all this stuff up in post-production. We'll talk to you in 2022. <laughs> hey, we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Signal Fire Radio. If you enjoyed it, please do not forget to connect with us on social media and like, click, 
subscribe and turn on notifications here on the YouTube page so you'll never miss a minute of our content. Also, if you are an ambitious leader and you are involved in ambitious leadership and you want to be a guest on Signal Fire Radio, please get in touch with us. You can email Matt at signalfire.media or rob at signalfire.media. We would love to talk to you about how you can get on our show, tell the world what your value is, and showcase your ambitious leadership across the digital landscape. We will talk to you next week.